This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kelly McCourt, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so thrilled that you chose to have me on the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kelly has worked as a national and international television anchor, scriptwriter, producer, reporter, and is an experienced print journalist and magazine editor. She has a double BA in journalism and creative writing. She studied journalism in Southeast Asia and then completed a postgrad scholarship program. After a misspent youth as a wayward socialite, and we want to talk about that, she found her way into writing and is now passionate about creating entertaining, gender-empowering stories. Her debut novel, Errors on Fire is described as one for the money meets crazy rich Asians with a little Miss Fisher's murder mysteries thrown in. That's a really good description of the book. Kelly lives in Sydney with her two amazing daughters and two poodles. Yay! <laughs> I've got a Maltese poodle. He's sitting nearby. He's somewhere. I've got two um, toy poodles named Ricky and Nikki, and we did not name them. <laughs> they came pre-named and uh, very much a part of the family, very much running the what show. What colour are they? <laughs> They're white. Do you want to come up here, Nick? All right. They're asleep at, okay. at, at my feet. Yeah, same with mine. Okay. Oh, oh hello. <laughs> so this is a podcast. Oh, he looks so Sorry. Much. Is that uh, Ricky? That's uh, Ricky. Yeah. yeah, Ricky has a brown nose. Yeah, they look so much like my John Brown. He's a Maltese poodle, so they look very similar. Uh, aren't dogs the best things ever? Yeah, especially in COVID times. <laughs> I, know. I I was at a dinner party, well, not a dinner party, but a, um, a gathering the other day, socially distanced, very small gathering, let me qualify, and um, somebody told me that a, a poodle was now worth $10,000. I and heard I just that died yeah. and I said to rang my mum in Perth and said I should never have gotten those dogs de-sexed <laughs> I could have solved all my financial problems she, she, and she said to me very wisely as mothers do yes but somebody probably would have nicked them by now if they were ten grand each and you could make other dogs from them so I think that's probably those are probably wise words that and the fact that I have no real interest in running a puppy farm which is an awful thing <laughs> But the, the staggering amount of um, amount of money some dogs are worth, which is just crazy down to me. Well, I mean, all the people that have gotten dogs during, and this isn't going to be a dog podcast, so stay with us, but <laughs> one final note on dogs, because I live across, uh, well, I live in a park, I live, um, and uh, there's so many dog walkers, but that has increased exponentially during COVID and so many new puppies, which, you know, I mean, I love a puppy and I love a dog, but I'm just hoping that, I'm just wondering why... It's not a commitment for one or two years, as you know. It's a commitment no. for 15 years. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope everybody sticks with it is all I can say. 
well, they've been very popular in COVID. I think people working from home mm. like to have some company. Yes. Um, we've, ha- we've had them, I don't know, two and a half years now and they were 18 months when, when we got them. The lady who had them wasn't able to hang on to them anymore and she grilled me for about six weeks before handing these dogs over. So I'm very qualified yeah. um, and have been thoroughly vetted <laughs> by the owner. All right. Now, Kelly, what an interesting background. Firstly, I want to start with where you grew up. From what I can see from um, our introduction and our research here is that you have a love of storytelling, you know, and that has started, you know, it, it's been around obviously for a very long time and this is your debut fiction book. But tell me how it all started, where you grew up and where your love of reading developed or writing. So I grew up in the suburbs of Perth. Yes. Um, my suburb was on the very edge of the border of Perth which was probably only about 15 minutes from the city at the time and the rest was scrubland and you could go for a walk and there was naturally growing, you know, uh, kangaroo paws and beautiful natives and I often did wander around in the bush. I didn't tell my mother, of course, she probably would not have been thrilled. Um, And books were my great escape when I was a kid and I just loved them. Enid Blyton, everything I could get my hands on, you know, the magic faraway tree, the wishing chair, all of that stuff. Um, and I would read them over and over and over. I would climb a tree in my front yard and read these books and just imagine that I was somewhere far, far away. Books have always been my great escape. Um, And I remember one Christmas, I think I was about 10, and I received a flower from the attic as a Christmas Ah. gift. And uh, my mum was not a huge reader. You know, my mum's an accountant, my dad's an accountant. Uh, You know, creative writing is not really on their radar. Um, but I loved books and so I had this flower from the attic book and by the end of Christmas Day, that book was read. I mean, you give a 10-year-old that kind of content, I had just never heard anything like those stories. I still have that book to this day. I still have all my inner flight and books. It was just astonishing for me and it was just such an, a marvellous escape and I think at about 10 I started writing poetry and it was really morose. (laughs) I want to get back to that. I'll get back to your poetry, but I just want to talk about Flowers in the Attic. I've talked about this with other authors recently um, and you'll remember this. There wasn't a YA genre back at the time. So no, you, I don't think so. No, so you went because I worked in a bookstore, right? And there wasn't a YA genre at all. And you went from um, reading kids' books to adult yes. books. Yes. And there were some of those in between books at the time, and Flowers in the Attic was one of them. Oh, what okay. to 10 plus, 12 plus, you know, kids because I was always looking for things out of the adult section to now give them that I thought were child appropriate. But over the years, amazingly, this YA genre developed really basically on demand because people wanted wow. to read it. It's interesting, isn't uh, it? it? It is fascinating. I mean, it's obviously yeah. a massive gap in the market that has been flooded with books, which is wonderful. I couldn't think of anything better than bridging that gap between children's books and adult books because in books, just as in life, it's a really tricky jump to make from being a child to being a tween to being a teen to being a young adult to being an adult whenever adulthood happens. Let me know. (laughs) When you feel like you get there, because I often don't ever feel like I've gotten there. No. I'm sure lots of us don't. With imposter syndrome on on adulthood, but yeah, it's an it's an amazing thing, and it's great that I've got two um, young girls, and I love to be able to 
buy them books and that they read books. One of them is only interested in anime, but you know oh, that's, that's another fun. huge market, like yeah. a huge market. She writes it, she she draws it, she reads it, she's all about it, which is yeah. awesome because for a young person to be so enthusiastic about any form of creativity is amazing. You know, my kids they play music and. I just think, wow, that was not a thing in my childhood. Like we had the bare basics sort of, you know, working class Aussie childhood. It wasn't, you know, doing languages and music and art were not, they were not on the radar. They really weren't. You studied hard, you became a doctor or a lawyer and a coward. It was vocational. You had a good living. Yeah, yeah, it was vocational. I want to go back to your morose poetry. Yeah, I used to write poetry all the time. I had a book, you know, a little exercise book that I would carry around. And, you know, it was in pencil, some of it. That's how young I was. And I remember sharing it, sharing some of it with my mother one day. And my mum's quite literal, like she doesn't understand comics. She'll read a comic strip and go, I don't get it. And to read her this stuff it was about, you know, children and mothers passing away. And it was very life or death full-on stuff I don't know where I got it from but that was just what was rolling around in my head as a kid like why are we here what's the meaning of life those types of things and my poor mother was just terrified I think (laughs) and she said I remember her saying to me are you okay you what you're writing this stuff are you okay and I was like yeah I'm fine (laughs) it's just don't you think that this is like interesting is you know aren't these questions you think about and, I, you know, maybe not all kids think about those things, but I did. And it must have been all the, the crossover between the magic faraway tree and the flowers in the attic. <laughs> and so then when you finished school, did you kind of know what you wanted to be? Did you Were you thinking vocational? I was always told because I was such a good arguer that, you know, you're going to be a lawyer and a barrister and, you know, you, you know, at a certain age my mum said to me, right, it's time for you to stop mucking around and you really need to knuckle down and, you know, see what kind of scores you need to get to get into university. And in Western Australia there are only two universities where you can do um, a law degree. Um, one is UWA and the other one is Murdoch and you only get to apply to one or two. Like you have to rank them. And it was a really weird system. So I sort of, you know, set about this 93% average that I had to get. And I was 16 when I finished high school. Um, I was 17 when I started at UWA. I was not old enough to go to half the tutorials because they were all in the pub. <laughs> and I come from the suburbs and I really did not know what to do with all of these rich kids. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't quite get it. And it was really, you know, my my interest in the the different social classes that we have in Australia and all around the world, and um, different financial backgrounds and social backgrounds, and those changes and where people live and all of those things is, is utterly fascinating to me. Because you know, as a as a ch- child, as an adult, as a teen, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to work these things out. So anyway. Um, after dropping out of UWA, I enrolled myself in a poetry degree, as I called it at the time. It was an English degree at Curtin, and um, I just loved poetry. I'd been writing it since I was 10, and it was the only thing I knew. Um, and when I started, they said, well, you have to pick up a minor. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with all these arty people? Like, I just was not like that. Um, and so... 
I, you know, I went through all these things and journalism was the most concrete of those things. So I did journalism as a minor and then I loved it. So I ended up doing a double BA in journalism and creative writing. And then I did a triple split of creative writing. So I did poetry, short stories and script writing. I just loved it. I just couldn't get enough of it. Everything that was creative writing or journalism was like distinctions and everything else was like, we're going to give you a sympathetic credit, <laughs> just <laughs> kind of maybe let you pass or maybe you need to like really rethink that. So, yeah, it was, I started off, you know, um, lawyer and I ended up poet and it took me, I reckon at least three months to tell my mother I had dropped out of one university and I was going to become a poet. She was mortified. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine, oh, I want to be a poet when I grow up? I mean, wanting to be a writer, a book writer is is difficult. Yeah. But poetry, that's another level of difficulty entirely. Um, She would probably be wondering what your source of income is going to be. Okay, so tell me what was your first job? Um, what was my first job? My first job was working at the Kings Park Snack Bar up in Kings Park in Perth, yeah. selling hot chips to tourists. That was yeah. my first job. I remember um, getting into trouble from the lady who ran the snack bar because I was always very efficient and organised and I thought I would make the tea for the day in this teapot. So I put the tea bags in and the water in and just left it there and then served it to people throughout the day. And, of course, it was disgusting <laughs> by about 10 minutes after. It never occurred to me to take the tea bags out. Um, yeah, but that was my first job and then I worked at Just Jeans in the city. Yes. Um, you know, and all of these things I sort of did before my time. I might have fibbed about my age a little um, because you just weren't allowed to work until you were 14. And at 12, I found myself in need of money. So, and I remember whatever I got paid, it was not enough to get a $20 note out of the teller machine. I used to have to wait for two weeks' wages. I think I got paid $3.80 an hour. (laughs) But it was enough to buy snacks and that was pretty much my aim, snacks and books. And so what about your first professional job? Was that a journalist? Um, My first professional job, well, I worked as a door girl for a long time at Club Bayview. Um, which is unfortunately where the girls went missing Um, and um, I saw those girls on some of those girls on those evenings. I saw Sarah. Can you tell us a bit more about that just for those? That was really harrowing. Uh, So um, in the 90s, uh, three girls went missing from an area in Perth called Claremont. Um, The first girl, Sarah Spears, went missing from Club Baby, which is where I worked on the door. Um, and I actually saw Sarah that evening and saw her leave and said, you need to, you know, catch a taxi or do something. But that was quite common for girls and guys that have a few drinks. They lived locally, like they lived in Claremont or Cottesloe or Subi or wherever it was, and they walked home. They just did. Perth was that kind of place Mm -hmm. before this happened where you did walk home at night. You know, um, and of course that doesn't happen anymore. And I come from the suburbs, so I would never have walked overnight. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I remember watching Sarah's parents camp out in front of the club weeks on end, every weekend, waiting for her to come home. And I just used to stand on the balcony and sometimes I would just cry. Mm. I would just cry. And it That's was very really fo- scary. Yeah, it's very formative for a young person, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think that really did shape me in so much as. After that, I wasn't so afraid to, to do that, you know, to, to chase those stories or to look at the uncomfortable things or to do the things, you know, 
you know, sometimes they used to call me the sex, drugs and rock and roll girl <laughs> at uni because those were the stories that I did. You know, those were the things that I was interested in. I was interested in stuff that was that was different and, you know, that was a, such a shocking experience and such, such a strange time to live through that, yeah, it really does it does change the way you deal with life and the way mm. you think about life and the things that you are prepared to look at and challenge mm. and, and operate with. So, yeah, uh, I think my first job out of uni, well, when I finished uni, I lived overseas for a year. I backpacked around Europe by myself for a year, which was awesome, had a great time, thoroughly recommend that. I came back and I got a job working at WATV as a receptionist. So I started off making people's coffee and typing up, um, you know, notes, which I was terrible at because I'm dyslexic, so I'm not the person you want to give things to and hope that you'll correct your spelling. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tell me about being dyslexic and being an avid reader and an avid writer. So uh, the form of dyslexia that I have doesn't really prevent me from reading. I read in a slightly different way to everyone else. I tend to um, naturally just read chunks of a text rather than read word by word, line by line. I'll tend to read a chunk. I've trained myself to read word by word, line by line. I don't have any natural instincts towards spelling or how things might be spelled. So I have to learn each letter in sequence in the word. I'll usually get all the letters, but they're not in order. So if I'm typing very quickly, the words will be there, but you have to change. It's like scrambled. They're all scrambled. But um, it's just training. You know, dyslexia is one of those things that you just have to work at. There's no magic pill. There's no magic bullet. There's no overnight. You just have to work at it and just keep going and going and going and just be dogged, you know, and really that's uh, It's astounding way. that a person with dyslexia achieves a, such a remarkable writing and reading career like you do. I guess many people do, many dyslexics yeah, do. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I talk to my kids about it. I think in a lot of ways dyslexia needs to be looked at as a gift, as a talent, as something that makes you capable of doing things that perhaps other people who don't have it can't do. You think in ways, you strategize in ways, you write in ways, you draw in ways, you're creative in ways that other people are perhaps not simply because your brain is wired in a different way. So it gives you, you know, lots of amazing opportunities. Yes, you're going to have to work harder than everyone else. Yes, you're going to have to put more time in than everyone else. Yes, there are going to be people who are not going to be 
you know, fans of yours because you don't fit into a particular mould, that's okay. You know, that, that makes you who you are, which, and being an individual is, is an incredible thing. So, yeah, I just, I just kept at it. I'm so impressed. So tell me how you transitioned then from journalism to writing long-form fiction. What, how did it come about that you decided to write a book? Well, sort of fast forward quite a few years, I had uh, worked in Perth in print and television and then I moved to Sydney to do a national show um, and I was here for a while and um, I had you know, a child and I had another child. And when I went um, back to work, I worked for um, the Health Television Network. I was their, um, the head writer in the end and I used to host their live TV events, which we used to have a couple of times a month. And I started getting really bad migraine headaches and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And I had like this twitch in my eye. So I actually just ignored it, Cheryl, for quite some time. As you do. <laughs> As you do. I had two young kids and, yeah. you know, I was the majority breadwinner and there just wasn't a lot of time. So eventually they got so bad um, that I went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I'm going to send you to a neurologist. Um, so she sent me off to the neurologist and I saw a neurologist who said, okay, we need to do some scans. So they did some scans and he said to me, okay, we need to do more scans because I think there, there's something there that we, that I need to see what it is. And I was like, well, what do you think it is? And he said, well, it could be Bell's palsy. It could be a brain tumour. Um, I'm not sure. It could be um, like a, a, a cluster. I don't know. I need to do another scan. So, you know, you have to wait for two days to get into an appointment or the three days, however long it was. And then it takes however long it is for them to process it. And, and you know, that's a long, that's a long week <laughs> where you're thinking, mm. wow, like, you know, I could have a, this could, you know, end my life. This could be a serious thing. Nobody wants a brain tumour. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about my girls and, you know, how would they would get looked after and all of those things. And that was, you know, it was really challenging. I went back to the neurologist and he said, you have uh, what they call a hemifacial spasm, which is a permanent condition where the nerve, that's one of the big central nerves in the brain, I'm going to illustrate with my hand, um, the arteries, one of the major arteries wraps around the nerve and it strangles the nerve and it, then the nerve spasms. So for me, the nerve is on the left side of my face and down the side of my neck and it is just in constant spasm. So there's lots of fun treatments for that. There's a surgery you can have, but there are significant risks of hearing loss, like significant hearing loss. You could essentially become deaf from the surgery. Um, the cluster is located very close to the centre of the brain which is a really dangerous place to, to operate. So there are significant risks of uh, brain damage and brain injury from that surgery. It's just not a risk I'm prepared to take. Yes, so my face spasms, so I'm uneven, so I can't, you know, it really sort of ends you. Do you still suffer the headaches? No, the headaches I very rarely get because I have every couple of months I go to the neurologist and they actually inject my face and my eye and my neck with um, a form of Botox to yep. stop that spasm. Yep. It's not the fun Botox, wrinkle reducing Botox. No. Is it goes a shame, can't muscle. use it for chill <laughs> yeah. purposes. Although I think it certainly has, it does have some effect. And then, yeah, so that just really 
slows down the spasm. Sometimes it works completely and they stop and I get peace for a month or six weeks. Sometimes it doesn't work at all because the spasm moves. Like it might decide it wants to move from here to here. Uh, so, yeah, we just take each, you know, each couple of months as it comes and really compared to having something like Bell's palsy or having something like, a, you know, a brain tumour. Absolutely. Or it yeah. is a walk in the park after that and I consider myself very, very, very lucky and extremely fortunate that it wasn't something that would be even more challenging. And so you decided to write a book then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it kind of ended my TV career. Yes. I couldn't do that anymore. The journalism market was constricting at a, you know, at a, at a crazy rate. And I actually enrolled to do a master's at UTS and I started that in marketing. I thought, you know, I need to do something else because I'm going to have to have a career change. And actually, I was um, just finishing my first semester of that when I was diagnosed with another quite serious illness and I ended up in hospital um, for quite extended periods and I had always been a huge fan of murder mysteries, especially serial murder mysteries like, you know, Michael Connolly. I can see the books behind you. Yeah, uh, Janet Ivanovich, yes, uh, you know, right. Jeffrey David, you name them. I, yeah. I love them. I read them and I reread them. And my favourite type is, you know, that murder mystery or the mystery that has got comedy and it's got female leads. Like, And those books are kind of unicorn books. You don't see a lot of them. Janet Ivanovich does a lot of that with the Stephanie Plum novels. Um, and, you know, after a while I was like, why are so many of the victims in these books women? Why are they so often women? Why are they raped and brutalised and stalked and kidnapped? Terrible things happen to them. Why are the majority of these people women? Like, I'm over that. <laughs> Why are there so many gory details? I've had so much drama going on in my own life. I didn't want the gory details. I just, I didn't want it in my head. I just didn't want that visual floating around. But I still wanted to read those books. I still wanted to have those adventures. I still wanted that escapism. But I wanted to escape somewhere nicer, you know, somewhere that was more pleasant, somewhere that had lots of females. I wanted females of different ages. Like you don't disappear when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. You know, like why aren't we seeing more of these older women in books as well? Why aren't we seeing, and then another thing that really bothers me, there just weren't enough Asian Australians in books either. I grew up with lots of Asian Australian kids who were either migrants or refugees from various countries in Southeast Asia, from Vietnam to Laos, lots of places. You know, I've got a cousin or two cousins. Their dad was from Singapore, so I've got Eurasian kids in my family. You know, one of my cousins who I love dearly. I'm like, why don't we see these things? There were, there, I had a list, you know, and I got grumpy. And I thought, right, well, you're a writer, Kelly. Either put up or shut up. If you're going to bitch about it, then do something about it. If you're going to mm -hmm. complain, even if it's a, you know, internal monologue to yourself, then do something about it. So I decided that I was going to write a book that had really strong female leads, a book in which women were not, you know, sexual victims, that were not kidnapped or tortured where there was no graphic violence, where children were not victims. I just didn't want to see that. I mean, it's and it is actually quite tricky to write a murder mystery because people get killed, right, and that's never pleasant. No. But to write it in a way that is also entertaining and funny, you know, like it, 
it, I, ha, I deal with sometimes quite serious subject matter when you think about it, but I try to deal with it in a way that, you know, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down type of thing. It's so, a really unusual book. It's quite sweet as well as being, you know, well-written, compelling. And it's got, now that I've spoken to you too, it's got so much of your flavour in it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it has. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> I think that's a great thing. It's got your vibrance and your humour in it, which is really lovely. I feel as though you're starting a new little genre as well with it. Oh, good. I hope so too. Mm. I've got bills to pay, Cheryl. <laughs> I want to. I want to be a writer, a novelist, till the end of time. So I've written the second one, and I'm now starting on the third one. So I have so many ideas for Eris on Fire stories. There are so mm. many avenues I really want to explore and there's a, an overarching arc. It's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit like one of those TV shows like Castle or something or um, The Mentalist where each episode, so each book deals with a particular story but then there's the overarching arc, you know, like Jane, Patrick Jane was always looking for Red John. So, yeah. you know, Indigo Wolf is, is looking to find out what her husband was really up to and what this this club is all about and who they are. And, you know, organised crime is fascinating to me. I've always loved it um, because it literally is a business. It says so right there in the title, organised crime. Yes. It, you know, they should call it organised crime business because really that's what it is. And, and those areas and streams of income are so fascinating to me and the way they they operate um, and sometimes I think they operate very much under the radar when really they're a massive economy, billions and billions of dollars yeah, um, absolutely. go through the organised crime economy around the world and in lots of different ways. I think the number one way of making money is actually native animal oh, trafficking. No. Yeah, I think it's above, I think if, if a memory serves, you know, like drugs and animal and, you know, human trafficking, they're all quite quite similar. I think a lot of time and energy goes into animal trafficking because the penalties are lower than they are for drug trafficking. That's my current theory. Mm. Um, so I think that makes it, you know, if you get busted doing something like that, you're not going to get the same time, type of jail time that you will get for, you know, running drugs or mm. especially in lots of countries. I mean, that's a death sentence. Oh my God! Uh, hopefully that animal traffic is being curbed a little bit by COVID because you know I hope so. Yeah, we've got to wrap up because we've gone a little bit over time. Um, the book is called Aries on Fire. Um, it's Kelly McCourt. Um, what can I say? Keep writing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm just so thrilled <laughs> to have been invited and to chat to you. It's our pleasure entirely. Thank you, Kelly. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, 
grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.